So, Ethna, here we are in late July, four months of lockdown. I haven't seen you since February, except on Zoom calls. But finally, we're in a face-to-face meeting. And one of the first questions I thought it would be interesting to discuss was what it's been like leading your organisation remotely, because I would imagine you haven't really seen many of your colleagues since March either. So take us through the sort of the ups and downs, the positives and the, and the negatives of doing everything from your house. Well, Matthew, um, very nice to see you in person. It is very good to be actually able to sit down and talk through things on a face-to-face basis. I think we've all missed it, much more so than we were expecting to. It has been a challenging period, I dare say, that most people have found it, some aspects of it, easy to settle into and some more difficult. But in getting people out of the office was one thing, a huge logistical exercise to make sure that they could have all of the equipment they needed at home. The challenge then was always going to be how do people respond to being at home? So some people have found it very difficult to adapt. The more rigid thinkers... Um, in my experience, have suffered a bit in terms of being able to change direction quickly. If you're younger and perhaps at the very start of your experience of the London property ladder, I think things have been pretty tough because a lot of those people are in flats where there's no shared living space and they're working out of their bedrooms, probably spending 16 hours a day in the same room. So I think it has been a bit tougher for, for them. And I think we're all inclined to overlook that as a slightly softer thing, but I think it's been a burden. How, I wonder, do things function where you're used to having close-knit teams who are sitting within earshot, with, you know, within sight of each other? How do you substitute for that physical intimacy being a really strong thing about office life? It's quite difficult to replace it. Um, I think the first phase of, and being honest about it, the first phase of lockdown was all about getting to a point where you could operate and provide service to your existing clients. The creativity that you're talking about is probably more prevalent when you're trying to win new clients, say. And that's a lot more difficult in a lockdown environment because the the things that you haven't done before, making sure that you can deliver what you have been doing in the past is a bit easier through this process than coming up with new ideas to new people and establishing new relationships. That's, I think, the big challenge for lockdown and for people businesses within lockdown. This is my second week back in the office in the first three days of last week. I managed to see people in the office that I hadn't seen for three or four months and to address issues that I didn't know were necessarily there. So the walking around person-to-person relating of experience is still a very important part. So it must be true, you know, the further up the pyramid you are and you're at the top of it here, and the more pressing that is because the more important it is that you do see people, not in the immediate layer below you, but but, but, but below that. They They want to see you. They want to quickly grab you for a word about, something that you know that's on their mind that that they want you to make happen well they they will in conversation of a more casual nature relate 
experiences that they probably would be shy of bringing to your attention in a formal setting or a formal group setting. So the, the ability to, in a low-key way, bring up concerns, that dissipates a bit in Zoom or lockdown. It's more difficult because by the time you pick up the phone, um, you put in an appointment in somebody's diary, it's already an issue in a way that it probably doesn't suit people to necessarily try and address the softer stuff, which at the end of the day, ours is a people business. Teams work collectively. And if you can't address the softer stuff because of the circumstances, it gets more difficult. So what's the biggest Zoom call that you had since March then? What's the the highest number of people you've been talking to on one? We've tried to keep it at around 10. I've done I've done some Zoom calls with larger groups of maybe 40. I can't see them. They can see me, but I can't see them, which doesn't help. And if you have a screen full of individual shots of 12 or more people, the concentration required to tell the facial expressions of it's it, it's it's very true that isn't it and because i've you know shared some things where there are kind of 10 15 people and it's actually mentally exhausting isn't it because you you are trying to kind of see the response that's coming back which would be if it was round a table somehow would is, be easier is significantly it? easier definitely and then those micro expressions from people are are in many cases not so micro expressions from people um are are critical to the communication process. It's not just the words, it's how the words are said and the expression with which they're delivered that we all need to pay attention to. It's that importance of listening carefully to what's being said. And if you're trying to split your focus 15 different ways, it's quite difficult to extract the same benefit from the conversation. So here we are in your splendid office and you know we can see St. Paul's Cathedral, the spire, less than 100 metres away. What's the future for places like this? Because I'm sure the kind of prets and the city restaurants of the world will want to know what's going on as far as this office space. We've walked in here today. You're the only person we've we've seen. I don't know how many are in, but there are what's about, it going to be like in a year's time? At the moment, there are about 25 or so, somewhere between 25 and 30 people in. That's about 10% of the staff. We're hopeful that people who come back can see the work that's gone into making the office safe. The signage is clear, um, the flow, quite a lot of work and thought has gone into how to make it work for staff so they are safe. I don't think the signage is overwhelming. It's clear without being worrisome, which is a difficult balance to strike. So I would hope that by the time we get to September, October, that we might have somewhere between 40 and 50% of the staff in. Um, Not all the same people all the time, but in rotation, some who are comfortable to come back, some who are less comfortable to come back. But it is difficult to see, certainly between now and the end of the year, that full attendance is possible for anybody. So what does that mean for places like this? I bet this isn't cheap. I mean, I wouldn't want to be in the commercial property game at the moment. There's been quite a bit of debate about that. The longer term... Because people have have said that, you know, if it's only half full, then you don't need as much space. Now, the truth is that social distancing requires you to have twice as much space for half the staff, which in large part leaves you back to where you started. So I'm not sure that the requirement 
for office space per square foot necessarily declines, the shape of that space changes. And we all have to think pretty carefully about what that means for the next 12 months until such time as, as there is a vaccine or some breakthrough in terms of treatment, it's very difficult to see how you could get to more than 50 to 60% occupancy. Do you think it's fair to say that in this country, certainly, the people I come across, and I know you know either well as friends and acquaintances or, or through business, I think they almost do divide into two those who are scared and those who aren't. And clearly there are degrees in the middle. But I think it it has been a great divider, hasn't it? I think, you know, the sense that we're all in this together might be true, but our experience of it as a nation is definitely not the same, is it? Have you noticed that among Stiefel people here? Um, it's, a, <clears throat> it's an interesting question because the, the government, having been very slow to move into lockdown, then decided that they were going to properly terrify people in terms of in, in an effort to get them to comply, which did clearly work. And the infection rates and death rates have come down, and that, that's clearly a good thing. But it is considerably easier to terrify people than it is to reassure them. And the reassurance part of it, not just on a wider society basis, but also at Stiefel, that's quite that's quite difficult. So has that's that been problem. your has that been your job to try and yeah that's to, you know if, that's no, if not to comfort of, then to in, encourage encourage I, I think I could go no further than encourage because it's not reasonable you know, and, and we wouldn't it's not reasonable and we wouldn't do it um, to insist that people come back that's not a reasonable stance to take particularly as remote working clearly is effective that said for all of the reasons that we talked about earlier in this conversation. It works, it's just not as effective, remote working. So long-term, in a people business that requires teams of people to deliver a service to a client who also has a team of people, this is not a good long-term solution. So it's a question of balance, and it's a question of, yes, reassurance is important. Confidence in terms of seeing the office in its current format, making sure that people are comfortable with what's being done, that they think that it's comprehensive, and but they also familiarize themselves with the changes and they become confident in the ability to move forward. It's also true, isn't it, that it's, it's not just people, but London as a city has suffered. I mean, all those things that, that make cities, cities are by definition places where large numbers of people come together. And then you have the kind of, the, you know, the things that we love and enjoy, the theatre, you know, the opera, all Absolutely. those all those recreational things about it, which, you know, are still not functioning here. I mean, do you worry about the future of the of, of London as a city at, at the moment? I mean, I don't think it's any less afflicted than Frankfurt or Paris, but it is a problem for cities, it, isn't it? It is definitely a problem for cities. I think the main challenge really is is public transportation, public transport not transportation, because we should stick with the, the word transport, I think, making sure that London works whilst a large number of people do not use public transport, I can't see how that's possible. At the moment, there aren't a huge number of people in the office, but traffic is pretty heavy. These roads are not built to withstand 8 million people choosing to use the roads as their primary mode of transport. 
So I think that's less of an issue in Frankfurt. It's less of an issue in Paris. It's an issue for London and it's an issue for New York. If we can get to a point where there, it's possible to be confident about traveling with the appropriate measures on public transport, then things will change. But it, it really does, I'm afraid, go back to that before London can get to anything approaching a normal mode of operation. Now, before this happened, you had a considerable worry in your, in your sector here about Brexit. So come the end of the year, then we are out. And we've had the news last week that the Vodafone towers, the, the, the masks are going to be IPO'd, I think, in, in Germany rather than here in the UK. I'm assuming that it's still at the back of your mind, what, you know, with everything else going on, how you're going to deal with that here. I mean, what, what's the feeling you have for it at the well, moment? There is bad news and good news in the fact that nobody's talking about Brexit because there clearly is an existential crisis that is bigger than Brexit at the moment. Um, so it only has been pushed off the agenda because there's something bigger and nastier. Do I have confidence in this government's ability to engineer an exit? No, I don't. Is it likely to be disruptive? Yes, I think it is. Will business be ready for that by the end of this year? Unlikely in the context of COVID. It could be pretty messy. The Europeans on balance, coming back to your point about Vodafone, for the financial services industry, there's a the chance the Europeans are going to move to a much more sensible form of regulation that will attract business away from the UK to Europe. And I have no sense that our government is in any way focused on that. So the kind of no strings Singapore on the other side of the channel as an, as an answer is not intrinsically attractive to you then? It, well, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying this government won't deliver it. So, so they're, they're caught in the, they're the middle of what we've got at the moment and where we would like to go and they can't really have either. They, I, I think they will possibly deliver the worst combination of all worlds. They will stick rather slavishly to a number of the regulatory changes that have been initiated by the FCA that are going to be more draconian and less commercial than the stance that the Europeans move to. Does that mean you're going to be spending even more time on a plane between here and Frankfurt then? Almost certainly. And how do you feel about that? Perfectly happy. <laughs> Perfectly happy about it. There, there is a, you know, it's, a, it's a different country with a different culture, but they're perfectly sensible people to do business with. But do you, do you feel that your sector is being heard at the moment by government? I would, I would suspect not. Post the financial crisis, so 2008-9, there's very little sympathy for financial services and bankers in general, which you can understand. But that probably needs to be balanced against the contribution to the exchequer that financial services makes. So if it's disruptive, the exit from Europe, then it's possibly going to disrupt tax takings. And that's going to leave less capability for the government to provide services. Surely some people within the Treasury who understand, you know, particularly at the moment, with the Chancellor being as beneficent as he is, the need for cash to come the other way. Well, you'd like to think so, but it does appear that the Treasury 
or certainly the government, I think less the Treasury, to be fair to them, but certainly the government have been rather slow to acknowledge and understand the contribution that it's made by the leisure economy to the overall economy. They've been pretty slow to get that point, and that affects voters. Yep. So do they care about financial services? I would suspect very little. Mm. Now, that brings us nicely on to the purpose stuff, which we've been talking about a lot over the last couple of years. And we had a really interesting discussion last week about fintech where purpose came up towards the end. And I think you detected, as I did, a kind of a growing scepticism that it's sort of being bought in almost as a bolt-on for some of these organizations who sort of say, well, look at Unilever, aren't they kind of rather wonderful at it? Can't we kind of get get a bit of that in and paint ourselves with a little bit of purpose wash. What are your feelings about it? I mean, what do you, what do you feel your purpose is as, as Ethna O'Leary when you come in and, and that of your organisation when you, when you step back into the office here for the first time after those months? Well, our, our purpose is, this is going to sound remarkably um, straightforward and, and unexciting. Our purpose is to provide the best advice that we can to the clients that need it. It's not more complicated than that. It's simple, it's straightforward, but that's what we're here to do. The best advice to our clients. The purpose behind that and what goes behind that is important, obviously, but you can't have purpose without integrity and competence. And I I do find the whole purpose debate troubling because it does seem that there are many businesses out there trying to short circuit the route to purpose, to leave aside the fact that you don't need to mean what you've said, and you certainly don't need the competence to deliver what you've promised. Now, I think that is potentially fatal for the businesses that try and do it that way. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you do get a strong sense at the moment that, and particularly in consumer financial services stuff, that it's it's almost the way in which they're presenting themselves is almost dis- descended to the level of schmaltz, isn't it? I mean, it, it is, it's peculiar, isn't it? You know, the sense they're trying to make themselves green and warm and cuddly rather than saying, well, look, come on, get your mortgage with us because we're better, you know, at this, this, this and this. Rather than that, you're covered in this sort of amorphous it, hug. It, I, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I, I do find it, I do find that side of it a bit trying, really. Um, you do have to be careful what you promise people. If you are promising them easy access to their money, then deliver easy access. If you're promising good pensions advice, then do that. But don't try and promise them that you're going to make their lives better because that's a much broader idea and you have no control over delivering that. It's Um, interesting. You kind of find yourself always when talking about this, going back to the Adam Smith thing, that you don't really need the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker to be kind of thinking about society and doing good or what have you. What what actually you want is a butcher, a baker or a candlestick maker who does her or his job well and during the process of that contributes to society in the way in which they do. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, the, the move beyond that to making life better or connecting people globally, it's a bit much for me because it doesn't provide the wherewithal to really stay honest to the promise, simple promises that are delivered and taking some time to understand and measure the fact that you've delivered to your clients is quite important. Now, this conversation came up in the context of our roundtable about fintech, and that's one of the things I wanted to sort of conclude this conversation with. I mean, where do you think 
organizations like Apple and Google are going to be in financial services in three, four, five years' time? Because we know we know there is an enormous amount of hubris, isn't there, in that tech world. They think they can do everything better than the incumbents, whether it be, you know, map reading, which actually probably they are pretty good at, moving towards remote driving and then medicine, education, and surely they're going to come walking into your sector faster than we all think. You know, Apple Pay is probably just a start. I can see Tim Cook thinking he could probably run Goldman Sachs better than the current incumbent. It's getting increasingly difficult for a new fintech to emerge because how do they get to the customer? The cost of getting to the customer, of advertising, um, is definitely becoming more of a barrier to entry. And then you look at the incumbents and say, well, Apple has more cash than it can spend by quite a long way. So could they go into financial services provision and banking in general? Yes, they could. Are they regulated in the same way as big banking providers in the States or the UK? No, they're not. Does that provide them with an advantage? Yes, it does. So the more interesting question to my mind is, as fintech and tech generally becomes more mainstream and becomes a pillar of society, are they sufficiently well organized from a corporate governance perspective to execute that responsibility? And I fear the answer to that is almost certainly no. I mean, it was interesting that Facebook's first attempt to bring in its own currency seemed to be kind of pushed back and resisted on all fronts. But I wouldn't imagine he's finished in that area, is he? I mean, he's not going to just let that lie down. I would imagine that we will see see more of that. But the, the question is whether those companies, in terms of the hubris that we're talking about, and, and we, we've talked about Wirecard as well, that Wirecard is a good example of old-fashioned greed and dishonesty motivating companies to defraud. And it's it's definitely, it's it's no more prevalent in the financial services sector than it is in the tech sector. But the compliance and governance around financial services has, for years, um, and as a result of many failings, I'm not trying to say that it's it's necessarily um, quite uh, properly driven, but the fact of the matter is it has distilled down into a set of rules and regulations that, in large part, make it difficult to defraud members of the public on their financial services advice, which is as it should be. Now, finally, your old stomping ground retail at the moment. I mean, what is the future for the high street here in in the UK? Because it it does seem at the moment to be the sector that is bleeding most freely and is in a terrible state. Um, Unfortunately, for those that are really tied into bricks and mortar delivery of the service, they are not showing any signs of being able to recover from this. This is an acceleration of the move to digital and the move away from property has been with us for a number of years. We're just seeing a rapid acceleration of those pressures. Do a lot of those businesses, again, have too much debt within them? They haven't got enough resilience in terms of having an equity base that can take some shocks and recover. They don't. So a lot of it will not recover. So we might see a very different high street emerge that we won't necessarily find hugely attractive. And also, it's interesting, isn't it, that right in the middle of this, we've had a sort of yet another scandal in 
in in in clothing in in textiles do you think that at some point there is going to be a change there where we stop having 27 t-shirts and we go back to the days certainly of my youth where kids had sort of two or three and a pair of sandals in the summer and a pair of I'm sure I darned a sock once or twice in my views, but don't you think that that kind of fast fashion and the, you know, the cheap side of it may have come to the end of the line now? I'd, I'd like to think that was true. Um, I just don't necessarily because consumers in the main understand, I suppose, and they, they really do understand it, that if you buy a T-shirt for £2 or £3, there's got to be a chance that somebody in the chain that produced that T-shirt isn't getting paid. So it could be the supplier, it could be the person who sewed it, but it doesn't make a lot of sense that you can get a T-shirt into a shop for two or three quid and everybody's got a good return out of that. That seems unlikely when you stand back from it. I would like to think that there's less disposable fashion. I think we will probably find that the pressure that's on certain members of society in terms of the pressure that's on their wage packets will dictate that that's more of a middle-class pursuit than it is a wider society. Lots of people in society can't afford those sorts of considerations. So you think, I mean, the next couple of years are going to be bumpy and rough then, really, for the economy and for employment? I, I would be astonished if it's if it's not. I mean, the furlough scheme has been a success in terms of reducing the immediate pressure, but unemployment numbers and will, I'm afraid, tick up to the extent that there is an extended period without confidence to return to work or the high street, then it would appear that that damage will get more extreme. The, the better question is why we have so many jobs that are dependent on low value add service type activity. And that's that's a good question and one that needs to be addressed, but it's not going to be addressed in the next six months, I but, fear. So, but I mean, on, on the positive side, could it be an inflection point to use that cliche where we do move to a kind of higher skills added it, it value could be. economy? It could be. Um, then you would have to believe in the ability of this government to do anything other than manage to walk across the stage without falling over its shoelaces, which I, I'm afraid I, I doubt in the extreme, with two significant existential threats, COVID and Brexit, are they going to get on to education policy? I think that's unlikely. Mm.